0: Hi, I'm Pastor Lori Boucher, and I want to personally welcome you to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Are you ready to study the Bible together chapter by chapter? If you go to heartstrong.life and sign up for a free membership, you will get access to the full Bible reading plan and all the bonus discipleship content that we have prepared for you. Open up your Bible and get ready to take some notes because God is going to speak to you today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together through the study of God's Word.
1: Let's start with our scripture, and then I'll open in prayer, and then I'm going to have Alan lead us. So 1 John chapter 4, verses 15 to 19, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. has has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Let's open in prayer and have Alan start to teach us. Father, we thank you once again that we can gather together as family around the word of God and just have our hearts opened and prepared and ready to receive what will come this morning. We love you, we honor you, and we just say, go for it today, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Alan, I'm going to turn it over to you. Bless you, my friend.
2: Thanks so much, Jay. All right. Hello, everyone. I'll start off with a quick five minute summary uh, just to give you the highlights of Exodus 3 and 4, two of the most amazing chapters in the entire Old Testament. That's a bold statement, but I think by the end of this, you'll, you'll be in full agreement. But let's start with just a quick synopsis of what those chapters are about i came up with this tongue twister if i were a real pastor i would have had four p's or five p's i'm not so this is the best i could do but just look at this together here what is three and four exodus these chapters about god reveals his personal name and rescue plan for his people Recruiting a reluctant shepherd who is returning to his roots—a bit cheesy, but it has a bit of a ring to it. So let's let's look at the six major milestones or signposts in these two chapters. Obviously, we have the burning bush. Moses meets God. He's commissioned by God to lead the rescue plan that God has in mind. God has seen, as we saw in the chapter yesterday, God has seen the suffering that the Israelites are going through. He, I mean, it's an amazing verse when he said God saw what they were going through. He has compassion. So Moses has this moment with God at the burning bush. He receives the mission to free the Israelites from slavery. But then Moses has a bunch of questions. He pushes back, right? It's a fascinating conversation that unfolds between God and Moses, largely because Moses has a dialogue, has lots of, lots of questions to, uh, to God. In those questions, God does some big reveals. So we learn some new things about God that don't come out in Genesis, but are unfolding throughout Scripture as they continue to unfold all the way through to Jesus. But there are some key points revealed. I'm not going to spoil them for you yet. You have to hang on and and watch the entire half hour to see it. But uh, one little clue we receive, we hear God's personal name, him saying his personal name for the first time. Uh, signs and wonders, okay? Hey, who wouldn't love that? A, a staff or a stick that turns into a snake. The leprous hand, not, a, not so big a fan of, but uh, pretty scary. And then water turning into blood. So signs and wonders, another key signpost. And last but not least, family, right? What, what is anything without family, whether it's family support or family issues, Aaron gets recruited to help Moses because Moses claims he can't do it. And on the other hand, Moses' son escapes death. So we'll cover all of these six uh, over the course of the next half hour. But just to give you a quick synopsis, this is what happens in Exodus 3 and 4. Now let's look at the parallels of these two chapters to Jesus and Jesus' life. Okay, I may be stretching things a little bit. So use your imagination to to some extent, but there are some very clear delineations between what happens with Moses and what happens with Jesus. Again, quick snapshot. God reveals instead of, if I flip back, right, his personal name and rescue plan for his people, now it's his final personal rescue plan for all people. Jesus has also a burning bush type moment. With his baptism, when his ministry is launched, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all meet together and he is commissioned with a very similar mission, right? To free people from slavery, just like Moses, but a larger metaphorical slavery to sin and death. And there are questions that come up, not from Jesus, that's the a clear distinction, but there are questions when Jesus is led into the wilderness shortly a- afterwards, he's tempted by Satan. Also, the many questions he faces from the religious leaders, right? So all kinds of questions. It's definitely one of the signposts of Jesus' ministry. And then there are big reveals. Just like with God and Moses, Jesus has many big reveals about who he is, the Messiah, the I am. Oh, I just gave a clue away of what we're going to be talking about. But the ability to forgive sins. These are revelations that come out. Signs and wonders. Obviously, a crucial part of Jesus' ministry just as with Moses. And once again, family enters the picture, both in terms of support and issues, right? People don't believe him back home. Who is he is just a carpenter. But then again, his mother, his brother support him. So some parallels, definite parallels to Jesus. So what are the takeaways for us? Okay, Alan, that's an academic conversation we just had. How does that apply to my life? First of all, as we'll see in the passage, what does Moses do at the beginning? He draws near to God, right? He notices a bush on fire but not being burned. He said, "I will go over and see what is going on here." He draws near. The first question he asks when God commissions him happens to be an irrelevant question. He says, "Who am I?" right? This is the question we ask about ourselves all the time. "Who am I to do this? Who am I? I, I mean, I am nobody. I'm I'm nothing." Right? Wrong question. God doesn't even answer the question as we'll see in the passage, he simply says, I'll be with you. So the better question is, will you be with me? And the answer to that is yes, I will. Third point, it's never too late. And I'm not, notice the wording I use here. It's never too late to let God fulfill your destiny. I'm not saying for you to fulfill your own destiny. No, it's never too late for God to fulfill your destiny. I mean, Moses is the most unlikely hero you can imagine. He's 80, he's a murderer. He's a shepherd. They're not even his own sheep. They're his father-in-law's sheep. He owns owns no property. He's a foreigner in a strange land. He's out in the middle of nowhere. He's the least likely hero. God chooses him. I'll say an advanced age. I'm not going to say old. At an advanced age, he's the one who's chosen by God. And when God picks Moses and gives him the commission, I always think of this line from Pastor Barry, he has someone else in mind. When God saved you, He had someone else in mind. He's asking Moses, think beyond yourself. Think of these people, my people, and be part of the rescue plan. Last of all, God's going to do the work. God is the one who performs the signs and wonders. Moses is just an instrument. So as you're going about your day today, I challenge you, go near to God. Forget the self-doubt. Let God fulfill your destiny. Think about others and trust God that He's got it. Before I get into the teaching, I just want to solidify this with a quick prayer. All right, Father, we give you our full attention right now. As we're going to learn, you are, your name is sacred, it's holy, it's unknowable, it's beyond our understanding. And yet, somehow, even though the gap between you and us is infinite you loved us you cared for us you had a rescue plan for us you sent your own son Jesus to save us from slavery to rescue us from the slavery to sin and death that we're in and we thank you that Jesus lived a sinless life he died an unjust death and was therefore considered worthy to be raised from the dead to be the firstborn of the dead and that through him, we can be reconciled to you and live with you. And as abiding and following and practicing what it means to be a disciple of yours. Thank you, in Jesus name. All right, I'll just continue here and go right into the teaching. So we've covered it at a high level. Let's drill down on some of those specific signposts that we focused on a few minutes ago. Exodus 3 and 4. This is absolutely a new era in the way God deals with his people. It's a new beginning. Genesis is full of amazing stories of God working with the patriarchs and starting, uh, you know, the covenant being established and the plan being built out. But here we're seeing something new, right? For the first time, God is called holy. The place where you're standing, Moses, this is holy ground. So the first association between God and holiness happens in Exodus 3. This is also the first time that God calls Israel my people. Up to this point, right, it had been individuals working through the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now it's my people. So there's a very personal connection between God and Israel. And then thirdly, the the next big first is that God refers to himself by his personal name right? Also, the location is significant, and we'll cover that at the end, but where does Moses meet God? It's not just anywhere. It's on Mount Horeb, which later would be called Mount Sinai, right? This is a very significant place, as we'll see. So, let's look at Moses and and where he he is in terms of his career. I, I think we covered it yesterday, right? He he has such a promising beginning. He's a fine looking child, fine looking enough that he's hidden, that he's taken into, the, um, into Pharaoh's court and is raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And then he commits a murder, has to flee for his life. This is what was covered yesterday. So, first 40 years, lots of promise. Next 40 years, by the end of that 40 year period, things are not looking so good, right? The transformation from Prince of Egypt to Shepherd seems like a massive demotion let's think about that for a second what would it be like to be moses 40 years later looking around and saying what happened to my life it seems like an emotion in human terms but actually what is it let's think about it from a spiritual context see it through the eyes of the spirit it's actually a return to the occupation of his ancestors remember israel and israel's ancestors they were shepherds they've been slaves now for over 400 years They're disconnected from that heritage of shepherding, of livestock, of caring, right? Here's a sidebar. Maybe it'll mean something to you. When I think about success, and this is true of me in my own life, I continue to battle with it. It's not a ladder to climb. It's a journey towards our true identity in Christ and his purpose for our lives. That is success. So redefine success for Moses. He's actually in a successful place right now. Think of he's, the, he's a shepherd, and there's an obvious parallel to Jesus as the good shepherd. And those 40 years in Midian, where he's a stranger, they're not wasted, right? Think about the skills he learned during that time, how to care and be present for the sheep, much like he would with people, protecting the sheep from enemies, providing for the sheep in the desert. He's on the far side of the desert when we first see him in this chapter gathering the flock together, and of course, most, perhaps most importantly, he knows the wilderness really well. He's been guiding those sheep through it for years. Very important information for the next 40 years. So that's Moses as shepherd. Now let's think about the burning bush for a second. I'm moving along quickly here because there's a lot to cover, and I want to make sure I do it. Uh, we can get to some questions later if there's something you want to double tap on. The burning bush is. Clearly an instance of God appearing to people in visible form, right? This is called a theophany. God appearing visibly to people. It signifies God's holiness, reinforced by the holy ground that Moses is standing on. And also Moses was afraid to look at God's face. Now, holiness implies two things. It obviously it's separation, it's distinction being set apart, but there are two aspects to it. The first is righteousness, and we see the fire which throughout scripture is a symbol of God's purifying, refining work in people, right? Burning up the chaff. So there's righteousness, that's clearly one aspect. The other dimension to it is otherness. And I referred to it in my prayer a couple of minutes ago. There is an infinite gap between us and God, between the creator and the creation. There's a transcendence, an otherness to God, And that's what holiness implies. So this first usage of the word holiness with God is extremely significant in establishing God's authority, his power, and his distinction from us, from humanity. The burning bush is also an image of God's glory and majesty, his unapproachable light that uh, Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6. Now, what's interesting, of course, and this is what causes Moses to go over to in the first place, is the bush is on fire but it's not consumed. And that's the paradox. Okay, maybe I'm stretching it too far, but what a paradox of God and his grace. On fire, purity, justice, but not destruction. I'm not saying it very well, but I think you get it, right? It's on fire, but it's not burned up. Signifying God's intent to preserve, not destroy his people. So let's keep going got a lot to get through here. God refers to himself as I am. Now, people who know me will know that there was no way there was going to be, there was not going to be at least one math equation in this talk, because I am a math nerd. Sorry. Actually, I don't apologize for it. But this is the place, right? God refers to himself as I am. He doesn't just say I am. He says, I am who I am. All right. So there are lots of references you can, you can, I encourage you to go and do some research on what this phrase, what this sentence actually means, but think about it for a few minutes, logically. First of all, it means God is always in the present. He's always in the now. Any time in history, past, present, future is always now for God, right? And Jesus says the same thing, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus himself affirms that he always exists, that he, it is always now for God, right? Kind of a mind-blowing thought. I am also implies that God was never born. He, was all, he always existed. He pre-exists time. In fact, he's the creator of time itself. That's why Jesus, when he says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, time, both beginning, uh, middle, end, are he is outside of right? He controls. Um, it's also reference to God's unchangeable nature, right? I am meaning I, I don't change. I'm not variable. I just am. I am who I am. This is how I think about it. And you may not see this. This is an Alan thought, so you can discard it if it doesn't mean anything to you. But if you put God on one side of the equation, the I am, What can you put on the other side of the equation that will equal it? What possible descriptor, what possible other being, other person, could you put on the other side of that equation where the equation would work? The only one is God himself. So I am equaling, I am, makes perfect sense. It's self-referential. The only comparison to God is God. Jesus, of course, has many I am statements in John. You're probably very familiar with them. I am the bread of life, each one profound. So, what Jesus is doing here is he's providing ways for people to try to grasp this concept of I am who I am. So, he's uh, elaborating on I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, all of these. I don't mean to pass over these lightly. I just wanted you to see the connection that Jesus is making in John. Back to this statement in Exodus 3, I am who I am. And, of course, the statement that caused the the Jewish rabbis to go crazy was truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I've said it twice now because it's such an important statement that Jesus makes in John 8. Now, continuing with I am, God goes further. And this is what's really fascinating, something new I learned through the study, so thank you for asking me to do this because I, I wouldn't have learned it otherwise. God reveals His personal name. Now when I say His personal name, I mean like his first name. Like my first name is Alan. Uh, we have Jay who introduced me, right? God reveals for the first time, He refers to himself by His personal name. Now, the word Yahweh, or YHWH, these are the four letters, These do, this word does appear in Genesis, it appears throughout the Old Testament, but this is the first time God refers to himself this way. Up to this point, God has been referring himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on. This is the first time he says, tell them the Lord, L-O-R-D. So when you're reading your Bible in English and you see Lord, L-O-R-D, in capitals, but lowercase, this is the personal name that god uses for himself and what's interesting about this name it's four letters it's y-h-w-h only consonants why is it only consonants because it can't be pronounced the idea is it's so sacred it's so unknowable it's unpronounceable that's the idea okay so y-h-w-h check it out it's called the tetragrammaton fancy greek word greeks love the fancy words but really, it just means four letters. It's represented by Yahweh. We all know what Yahweh, but the origin is actually YHWH in Exodus 3 is the first time God uses it to describe Himself. It appears throughout the Old Testament, uh, as I mentioned, Lord. When Jews were reading aloud the Old Testament, they would substitute Adonai instead of, which means my Lord instead of Yahweh, because Yahweh was considered, again, too sacred to say out loud. The proper meaning is tied to I am. So it's a natural progression to say, I am who I am, and then he introduces himself as Yahweh, because it means he brings into existence whatever exists. Uh, The word was never spoken again by Jewish rabbis after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Okay, so That's what I'll say about Yahweh. I think you could do so much more research on your own. Let's move on to Moses' objection, because this is the human part. Okay, we've covered God, the amazing, profound, mind-blowing aspects of God. But let's, let's get to Moses' objections. I don't want to miss this. He's actually got five questions for God, and God has the response to each question. So what I find fascinating, the first question is, who am I? I mean, I'm a nobody. And, okay, 21st century North Americans, what do we expect God to do? We expect God to prop him up and say, Moses, you, you know, you should have more self-esteem. You, you, you know, you really should feel better about yourself and prop him up, prop up his self-esteem. He doesn't do it. He just says, I'll be with you, right? It's, a, it's an irrelevant question. I will be with you. Then Moses goes further and in an, a roundabout way, he's saying, well, what name should I, uh, should I tell them? um you know what he's trying to actually ask there is who, who are you right I, I i don't even know who you are he's so disconnected as we'll see moses is from his jewish heritage from the covenant from who god is he's he doesn't know right and that question though is an amazing one because it leads to god revealing himself as yahweh the third objection is they won't believe me they'll say god hasn't spoken to me And you can read that at the beginning of exodus four. That's where the signs and wonders come in. And it makes me think of current day. This is exactly where North American society is today. A lot of us feel people won't believe us. And I am praying, and I trust you are praying, that proof through signs and wonders will be one of the aspects of people coming to Christ going forward. I have a growing sense that signs and wonders are going to be a key part of what God is doing in this next phase, North America. The fourth objection, I'm incapable. Okay, this is the classic, right? We all say it. Uh, Moses' case, he, he has a speech impediment, or he's slow of speech, whatever. God's response is, um, I made you. I'll help you. I, who, made, who made mouths? Who, you know, who, 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 who enables you to talk? I'll help you. Then Moses goes further. I'm, he's got a lot of i don't know i mean i I gotta give him a bit of credit i don't know if i would have asked that fifth question or to say send someone else but he does and god actually loses his temper he gets angry but he doesn't give up on moses can you see here the personal relationship that moses and god are forming and this i mean if you read the rest of exodus and i challenge you as you go through this this entire book look for the moments The very intimate moments between Moses and God. And you see the personal, kind, loving, compassionate, patient nature of God coming through. When somebody says to you, oh, the God of the Old Testament, harsh, vindictive, and so on. Nonsense. That person who says that doesn't know the Bible is a superficial uh, assessment of what's going on. We see here, no, God's very personal, very much interested, cares, and has a deep connection That is just beginning with Moses. Okay, this is a bit of a strange story, right? When I first saw, oh, I have to do Exodus 4. I'm like, great. I have to cover the bridegroom of blood story. All right, what am I going to say about that? First of all, I'll say this. There are some vague details. You know, is the angel there to kill Moses or his son is, uh, okay, so the son gets circumcised. But what happens? There are a lot, there are a few missing details as to what's going on, but let's take it up a level and see what the key elements are. First of all, Moses is in direct violation of the covenant with Abraham. Back in Genesis, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. This was part of the covenant established through the patriarchs before Moses. So Moses, he's so unaware of how far away he is from the covenant. We've already seen, he doesn't even know who God is. doesn't know that his son should be circumcised or has that been unwilling, one of the two, unwilling to perhaps go against Midianite traditions by circumcised. We don't know the reason, but for whatever reason, son is not circumcised. And Moses does nothing in the moment. It's Zipporah who actually takes action and circumcises her son to prevent his death. The message I take from this, You can take your your own. Leadership begins at home. There's no way Moses is going to go and lead a million plus people, two and a half million most likely, without him getting his house together. And it's up to Moses as a leader to ensure that he and his family are adhering to the terms of the covenant before they can move forward and and God will begin to, to work through him. So there's a whole thing on Moses' staff, which is kind of cool, ties into Psalm 23. Maybe we can get to it. But let me talk about Mount Horeb, because something that occurred to me, you probably knew this already. I, I, I was in the shower a few days ago. I'm thinking, wait a second, Mount Horeb, wait, 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 wait. That's where Elijah meets God after Elijah flees from Jezebel. So I'm thinking, OK, Moses was at Horeb. Elijah met God at Horeb. Whoa, 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 wait a second. Transfiguration with Jesus when Moses, Elijah and Jesus appear together on a high mountain, I'm thinking, wait, wait, is that high mountain? Also Mount Horeb? Yeah, unfortunately not. So uh, Mount Horeb apparently is the most possible location is between is on the Sinai Peninsula between Egypt and Israel, whereas the high mountain the mountain of Transfiguration is considered to be in Israel. I was hoping for a nice you know shiny bow, that ties together nicely to bring it all but it didn't quite happen but we see here a strong connection between jesus moses and elijah all meeting god on a high mountain all being transfigured all being transformed by the power by the presence of god and um peter talks about being eyewitnesses of his majesty he talks about it in second peter one finally Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, they all point to Mount Zion. This is our future, right? And the writer of Hebrews, one of the most moving passages for me in that book is when he compares uh, Mount Horeb, the mountain that was so terrifying that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. Don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement. Visit the HeartStrong shop with all kinds of awesome merch like hoodies, t-shirts, and mugs to remind you of this awesome journey of discipleship that you are on. Log in to heartstrong.life to access all your member content, resources, and downloads. We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible boot camp for kids. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples together.